This is James Cooper with K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District with your Extension Crop Report. Much of our early planted corn is moving along quickly, and a fair share of it is between the blister and soft dough state, or around R1 to R4. This means we are just a few weeks away from black layer or full maturity. So, now is a good time to talk about corn ear rots. There's a lot of them, and it can be hard to tell the difference. I don't expect ear rots to be a major concern this year considering the weather, but some ear rots like wet ears, and some prefer dry ears. The most common one, Diploidia ear rot, is favored by human and wet weather during silking. This ear rot is characterized by white fungus growing between the kernels and starting at the base of the ear. It can often completely overtake the inner kernels and turn the entire ear a grayish brown. This fungus tends to be worse in no-till or continuous cornfields. Fortunately, this rot is not associated with any mitotoxin, but it does reduce grain quality. However, the two similar ear rots of Fasarium and Gabriella can create a potentially harmful mitotoxin. Both are favored by humid conditions, but occur in all types of weather. Insects creating holes within the ear are common vectors for the diseases. The mitotoxins, specifically vomitoxin, has a threshold of one part per million for human consumption. But since most U.S. corn is for animals, thresholds are often between 5 to 30 parts per million. Swine and horses are sensitive to vomitoxin, while cattle and sheep are more resistant. The two ear rots look very different though. Gabriella looks more like diploidia, but is more common at the ear tip. Vasterium infects kernels with a white or peak fungus that can occur randomly throughout the ear. It is important to note that Gabriella and Fasarium don't always create vomitoxins, but they are capable of it. For the colorful funguses, we have Penicillium, Trichodermia, and Aspergillus. The three are fairly different from each other. Trichodermia is often associated with kernels sprouting in the ear. Penicillium is a bright blue-green and often on the ear tip. Aspergillus is different from all the others and is more common in dry years after pollination. Aspergillus is also capable of producing a mitotoxin known as alpha-toxin, which is toxic and carcinogenic. We've definitely had more heat this year, and some places have been very dry, which could favor this ear rot. The concern doesn't end with harvest either. Nearly all these ear rots can continue to grow in the bin with high moisture. Penicillin is especially problematic. Corn stored long-term needs to be dried below 13% moisture. So yes, there's a lot of various ear rots, but for some it's important to know the difference. Some like Diploidia will only decrease green quality, while some like Vasarian aspergillus can create mitotoxins, which can lead to a serious prycdosage or livestock feeding issues. If you find ear rots in your cornfield and need them identified, please give me a call at 620-724-8233. This has been James Coover with your Extension Crop Report. Next up, we'll have Wendy Powell, Livestock Production Agent for the Wildcat District. Hi, this is Wendy Powell, your Livestock Production Agent with the Wildcat Extension District. Extremely dry conditions and high temperatures have producers scratching their heads about how to keep critters fed without breaking the bank. There are a few strategies that can be adopted to mitigate damage to pastures and cow inventory numbers. The first, but probably not the most economical option, is to offer more nutrients by way of feeding hay or offering supplemental feed or even finding more pasture or sell cows. 
Another option is to early wean calves. Normal weaning for calves is 180 to 220 days. Weaning calves 30 to 60 days earlier than normal can be an excellent management tool. Nutrient requirements of the cow are reduced and a reduction in the daily demands on forage resources. Research tells us that a 450 pound springborn calf is capable of consuming nearly seven pounds a day of forage. A cow of typical weight can easily consume 28 pounds of dry forage. That's 2% of her body weight. If we divide the 28 pounds of forage needed to maintain the cow by seven pounds fared in a pasture by removing the calf, we learn that for every four days that a calf's not grazing with the cow, we get one grazing day for the cow. So one or two weeks of grazing can be gained by weaning 30 to 60 days early. Research at K-State documents calves weaned at 100 or 140 days of age increased body condition scores of cows grazing native pastures. This is more impressive considering the forage quality was likely declining and yet these cows were still able to increase body condition. The results of this study demonstrate that the optimum time to improve cow body condition scores is immediately following weaning. Furthermore, there are large benefits to improve cow condition before winter, such as feeding less supplement in cold months and improved breed up in the subsequent production year. So now we know about the benefits to the cow and to the ranch, but what about this newly weaned calf? There are a couple of tips I can pass along. First, prepare the calf for their new environment by exposing them to new water sources and feed. This will facilitate their nutritional intake. A study at K-State Ag Research Center in Hayes proved that when calves had exposure to a feed bunk, either in a dry lot or a pasture, there was a much higher likelihood of the calf approaching and eating from the bunk in that critical first week of weaning compared to calves that had never been exposed to a feed bunk before. As much as possible, limit stressors before weaning. Stimulate immunity through a vaccination program that matches the disease challenges those calves are going to face. And finally, develop your marketing strategy. Hold and feed the calves or sell at a lighter weight. For more information, give me a call at the Labette County Extension Office, 620-784-5337. Thanks, Wendy. And now, here's David Scrantz, Natural Resource and Diversified Ag Agent, with her report. This is David Scrantz, one of the Agriculture and Natural Resource Agents from the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District of Crawford, Labette, Montgomery, and Wilson Counties with your K-State Research and Extension Report. Habitat is a combination of food, water, shelter, and space arranged to meet the needs of wildlife. Even a small yard can be landscaped to attract birds, butterflies, beneficial insects, and small animals. Trees, shrubs, and other plants provide shelter and food for wildlife. The plants you use for food and cover will help determine the wildlife species attracted to your backyard. Nesting boxes, feeders, and watering sites can be added to improve the habitat. Planning is necessary for attractive and productive wildlife habitat. You have both a horizontal area to work with, the size of your backyard, 
as well as a vertical area that stretches from the soil to the treetops. The vertical area is composed of the canopy formed by the tallest tree branches, understory vegetation consisting of smaller trees, shrubs, and vines, the floor which is often dominated by low-growing ground covers, and the basement where a variety of organisms exist in the soil. Different wildlife species live in each of these zones, so numerous habitats can be provided on a small piece of land. Trees and shrubs are the backbone of any landscaping design and are important for wildlife shelter. Many trees and shrub species are excellent sources of food for wildlife. Proper selection of plant material can meet both the aesthetic needs of the homeowner and the food and shelter requirements of wildlife. Clean, fresh water is as important to birds, bats, butterflies, and other wildlife as it is for people. Water in a saucer, bird bath, or backyard pond is adequate for wildlife. Be sure to change the water every few days to keep it fresh. In hot weather, it may be necessary to refill the container daily. Logs, rocks, and water holding structures provide drinking and basking habitat for turtles, butterflies, and songbirds. Stones with depressions that collect water will help attract butterflies. Squirrels, chipmunks, rabbits, raccoons, opossums, skunks, woodchucks, mice, and deer are commonly found in many urban environments. These species are highly adaptable and in many cases are becoming unwanted visitors rather than welcomed guests. As with all wildlife, cover is essential for the survival of these species. Small brush piles intended for amphibians and reptiles will also provide shelter for rabbits and mice. Chipmunks and woodchucks are adept at digging their own burrows. Trees may provide shelter for squirrels, raccoons, and opossums. From the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District, this has been a Dave and with your K-State Research and Extension Report. Thank you, Adavin. And now, here is Jesse Gilmore with his report. With K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District, this is Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's Hort Report. Many people are calling the Extension office distressed about the sudden decline of large trees in their yards. Often, these trees will die back in parts of the canopy while looking totally healthy in others. In most trees, this is not a serious problem that will indicate long-term health problems in the tree. However, in American elm trees, this dieback can represent a disease that is lethal to susceptible elms all across the United States, Dutch elm disease. Dutch elm disease is a fungal wilt that is spread through root grafts or through vectoring by the elm bark beetle, and the manner in which it spreads to certain trees will determine the initial symptoms you are likely to see. If spread through root grafts where the roots of nearby trees fuse together, you will see the lowest branches begin to flag or die back and drop their leaves. If spread by the elm bark beetle, you will see random branches throughout the canopy begin to die back where the beetles feed. In either case, there will be brown streaking in the wood of infected branches, and the fungus will spread throughout the tree, eventually causing wilt symptoms throughout the entire canopy. Once the tree has been infected, you must control the disease through tree removal or attempt to kill the disease through fungicide injections. The mobility of this disease to neighboring areas means this is one plant disease you cannot just live with. 
Despite its name, the disease originally was introduced to America in the 1920s from Eastern Europe and Asia, and since that time has been estimated to kill over 40 million native elms. The most susceptible elm species to Dutch elm disease is the American elm, which will be what most homeowners and cities have in landscapes and on streets in our area. Recently, plant breeders have developed hybrids and cultivars that have shown resistance to Dutch elm disease. One such cultivar is Princeton. While I am hesitant to recommend new elm plantings in regions where Dutch elm disease is present, these disease-resistant hybrids and cultivars make it more likely that new plantings will not be severely affected by DED like previous plantings would be, and make elm trees more viable in the landscape. Research into a tree's common diseases and their occurrence in our area will give you an idea of what cultivars and disease resistances to keep an eye out for when purchasing new plants. Dutch elm disease has several prevention strategies, but once the tree has been infected, it is almost impossible to prevent the fungus from moving throughout the rest of the tree. The best method to prevent the spread of Dutch elm disease is sanitation of fallen twigs and branches, and consistent pruning of dead or weak limbs where the elm bark beetle would be likely to feed. If you suspect that your elm might have Dutch elm disease, always sanitize your pruning equipment if moving from tree to tree, so that you do not spread it to previously uninfected trees. In elm trees, there are two other diseases that are often mistaken for DED, elm yellows and bacterial leaf scorch. For help diagnosing elm problems, schedule a visit with your extension agent to figure out what is ailing your trees and what you can do to keep them healthy. I can be reached at 620-724-8233 or at jr637 at ksu.edu. Once again, this has been Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's Hort Report. Thank you, Jesse, and thank you for listening to K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District Ag Team on KGGF 690 Radio.